what you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We are back for another fantastic show, so thank you so much for joining us. Tonight we've got Matt Sergio back to discuss the Fabians and a number of prominent names that were a part of the Fabian Society. Now for those that don't know, the Fabian Society was a semi-secretive group. It started out as a secret society, but today they are out in the open. It was filled with eugenicists, depopulationists, and listen everyone, what you find is whenever you look back in history at the prominent names in terms of culture and the people who were shaping society, shaping the very world that we live in today. So we're talking the economists, the scientists, the philosophers, the musicians, the artists. What you find is that all of them just so happen to be really in favor of eugenics and depopulation. Isn't that interesting? It's just the same today. Now I can't help but think that is no coincidence that somebody is engineering it so certain people succeed and it's certain people who have the same views as them. So Matt's here to talk about the Fabian Society. We're going to look into some of the prominent names, the Huxleys. We're going to look into Bertrand Russell, somebody who wanted us all to own nothing and be happy. So tonight, me and Matt have a fantastic conversation about the Fabian Society, but we also get into many other areas too, like property rights, music, all kinds of interesting threads we go down. Members, please head over to parallelmate.com to sign in to listen to the full episode. If you're not a member yet, but you'd like to support my research and content and do a good deed, get some good karma, and here's some fantastic full-length episodes. Please head over to parallelmate.com where you can become a member. In closing, I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And like always, I'll see you in the next one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We are joined by a returning guest, Matt Sergio. Matt's been on the show Two times before, it's your third time, Matt. You are a fan favorite. You always deliver fantastic research. And we've done the Bloomsbury set. We've done the counterculture. And then that's kind of led us to speak about the Fabian Society and some of the members. But I think really it's going to be a synthesis of all of those episodes, just carrying on the conversation because there's so much to get into, Matt. So before we get started, can you just tell listeners a little bit about yourself if they haven't heard the previous episodes and where you can be found on the internet, Matt? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, I've been researching a lot of this new, this information that I've got tonight is new to me. And I've been looking at it for the last three or so, three, four weeks or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. As I say, it's fresh in my head, a lot of it. I was working on it right up until last night. So do forgive me in the course of this conversation, if I'm reaching over the table where I'm sitting now, it's strewn with notes of things I typed out and printed out. So I'm going to have to revert to notes 
uh, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to have to revert to notes quite a lot because a, a lot of this is fresh in my head still. Um, so again, thank you very much for having me on. My name's Matt, Matt Sergio, as you say, and I'm uh, the proprietor of a couple of websites, one of which is the Occult Beatles. I look at the occult and conspiratorial uh, counterculture, as it were, from a British perspective. That's what I've been looking at to to see whether it is indeed a social engineering project, in large part thanks to the work of David McGowan, who was the author of a book which I have right in front of me here. It's a very long title. Uh, it's called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. And I'm just looking inside the book to see when it came out. I think it, no, it doesn't have a year, I don't think. I think it came out uh 2015 or thereabouts maybe a little bit after that but basically in essence what this book is looking at basically the case that uh, David McGowan makes in this book is that many if not all if not the vast majority of uh so-called anti-establishment music artists of the 1960s um were actually part of a social engineering operation so his argument basically is that um they're right in the middle of the so-called countercultural era of 1966 67 68 when the vietnam war was raging the deeply um unpopular vietnam war was raging and and the young generation were fighting against it and protesting against it david mcgowan put forward the argument that the so-called anti-establishment music stars who were the beacons, if you like, of the so-called countercultural era of America, were actually not anti-establishment at all, that this was an act, this was a psyop, in order to steer away any effective protest by young people, to steer it away through their fame and through their influence, and to take it down a cul-de-sac, effectively. And to put forward this argument with, with evidence, as it were, if you read the book, you'll notice that he looks into a lot of the backgrounds of these so-called anti-establishment, anti-Vietnam War music artists, these so-called music artists that were sticking it to the man, or so they claimed. And he looked into their backgrounds, and it, 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 the vast majority of them actually come from establishment backgrounds, uh, so-called quote-unquote elite backgrounds. And I've, got, I've actually, in preparation for this, I actually have um, sticky-noted some uh, I've sticky noted some points to uh, read to you as as um, an example of what he was trying to to argue. Um, for example, there's David Crosby, who was part of the band uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And he was also in The Birds as well. And to quote from his book, to quote from David McGowan's book, uh, the Crosby family tree includes a truly dizzying array of US senators and congressmen, state senators and assemblymen, governors, mayors, judges, Supreme Court justices, revolutionary and civil war generals, signers of the Declaration of Independence and members of the Continental Congress. It also includes, I should hasten to add, for those of you with a taste for such things, more than a few high-ranking Masons. And he does actually go on, uh, McGowan does actually go on in the book to mention some more about um, the Crosby family tree, but I'll just leave it there. I'll stop it there. Um, another um, example that Dave McGowan puts forward in his book, which I think is the strongest one, the most compelling one, is that of Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. His father, 
was uh, US Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison. And he was actually in charge of the, uh, he was actually involved and in charge of the Navy at the time of the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, this so-called false flag incident that took place in, I think it was 1964. And what happened was, um, it was uh, it was basically a uh, an event, a non-event. It didn't actually happen the way it was was sold uh, to the American public. It was an event which actually launched the Vietnam War, uh, the, the full blown Vietnam War, if you like. I mean, up until 1964, there was American involvement in Vietnam, but this Gulf of Tonkin incident, this false flag, if you like, all this non-incident, actually began the escalation of troops to. Uh, uh, to Vietnam, US troops to Vietnam. It was used as the excuse to to, to begin that. And uh, yeah, um, US Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison was was involved. He was uh, the the commander, if you like. He was in charge of of what was going on at the time. The Gulf of Tonkin, I think, is based in the South China Seas, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, basically, what happened to give you a roundabout explanation. It was said that US uh, the US Navy was actually attacked by uh, uh, pro-Vietnamese forces. I think it might have even been Vietnamese forces. It's claimed. I might be wrong about this. I might be getting my details wrong. But uh, basically, uh, uh, the the Gulf of Tonkin was basically, in a roundabout way, uh, uh, um, what's, what's said to have happened, but that didn't happen, was that US Navy forces were attacked by Vietnamese forces um in the gulf of tonkin and then this was uh used as the uh, reason uh, as, uh, even though it didn't actually happen that way um it was taken to u.s congress uh, uh, politicians went to u.s congress and and argued uh, used this as the argument the basis to send more troops to vietnam and it was at that point that the vietnam war really did escalate you could kind of liken it to back into the, the early 2000s with the iraq um, situation and Saddam Hussein and George Bush and Tony Blair and the quote-unquote weapons of mass destruction, um, which there were none of. There were no quote-unquote weapons of mass destruction. But uh, it's it's kind of a similar thing to that. That was used, of course, in the early 2000s to launch the Iraq war, if you like. Um, so it's kind of similar to that. So that's who Jim Morrison's father is. Um, so here we have this these beacons of the anti-establishment um, uh, singing to this this young generation who are anti-Vietnam War. And it just turns out that Jim Morrison's father actually was instrumental in starting the thing. Um, yeah. And just one more example. There's Frank Zappa, who, when he was growing up, was growing up on Edgewood Arsenal. His father worked at the chemical warfare um, installation, uh, Edgewood Arsenal. and um, as a result, that's where Frank Zappa actually grew up, where he spent his childhood, uh, a large part of his um, childhood, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, those are just some examples there of what Dave McGowan looked at. So partly inspired by that, I thought to myself, well, if that was going on in America, it had to have been going on in Britain. It had to, because the UK counterculture, by my estimations, was integral to the success of the US countercultural scene, the hippie scene, if you like, whatever you want to call it, uh, was integral to the success of, of the, 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 the countercultural scene in America because bands like the Beatles, for example, were, were pushing um, and promoting this countercultural 
um, um, movement, if you like, um, largely thanks to such um, works as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The album they released in 1967 is, was, and still to this day is regarded as having been, quote unquote, the soundtrack of the set of the summer of love of 1967. So you could say that it was thanks to the Beatles in, in very large part that the countercultural movement was as big as it was in America and in Europe, because you had this huge, huge influence of this band, the biggest band in the world who were cross-generational in their appeal, who were pushing this movement. So I would argue that if there was a PSYOP, a social engineering PSYOP, going on with regards to the countercultural scene of America had to have been on in Britain. So I began to look into it. And indeed, just to give you just one example, maybe as we go along on this journey, I'll have one or two others to give you. But for now, I'll just give you one. There's, there's an individual by the name of John Hoppy Hopkins. Um, and he is regarded as the flag waver, the flag carrier, if you like, of the countercultural cause of London in the 60s. Um, if you speak to anyone, if you watch any documentary or read any book about the 60s countercultural scene of London and you speak, uh, if you hear any interviews or any document or read any documentation or statements from the so-called movers and shakers of that time who were with John Hoppy Hopkins making this happen, I would say that all of them, if not the vast majority, would say, would state that it was thanks to John Hopkins that this movement actually happened because he was the actual person who made it happen. He was the actual person in a, you know, in a stoned room, for example, if he's in, if he's in a room sitting with a load of his friends and, you know, you're all, you know, you're with your friends and one of your friends will be toking on a joint or something and say, hey man, wouldn't it be great if we could hold this event and raise money to, you know, open people's minds, you know, Hopkins was the kind of guy who would pick pick up on that and say, okay, let's do it. You know, and he would actually go out and do it. He was actually a doer. Thing is, though, if you look at his background, he does have very Laurel Canyon-esque, if you like, um, um ingredients in his background, in his, in his, in his history. Uh, the sort of ingredients that are, are featured in Dave McGowan's book. For example, uh, he was he studied at uh, Cambridge University which is one of the so-called two of the so-called biggest elite, quote unquote, elite uh, universities in Great Britain. Cambridge University, need I say, is one of those universities which, uh, is, if you look at its student list, it's, you know, kings and queens and heads of state and barons and future prime ministers and presidents even. Um, so here we have this countercultural figure, this leader of London's counterculture, who was held up as this anti-establishment figure. And already from his teenage years, here he is studying at Cambridge University. His father was a naval engineer. And of course, this is uh, another element of, of what Dave McGowan was looking at when he was looking at the 60s counterculture scene. And on leaving university, on graduating from university, John Hoppy Hopkins went and worked as a nuclear physicist. <laughs> yeah, he went and worked as a, a nuclear physicist at a um, Harwell, I think it was, which is a government installation. So, yeah, so here he is working for the government as a, as, as a nuclear scientist. 
Right. And then whilst he was working there, this is really odd. Whilst he was working there, he decided to go on. And, and don't forget, this is right in the middle of the so-called Cold War. OK, he decides to go on a vacation to Soviet Russia and he goes there in a 1936 funeral hearse. Now, don't ask me why he did that, but he went on holiday <laughs> to, to Soviet Russia with his friends in a 1936 funeral hearse to attend a communist youth rally. So this is somebody who's working. I think it was I think the nuclear um, installation he was working at uh, was was called Harwell, which is in a village in England, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So he's a nuclear physicist working for the British government in the in the midst of this so-called Cold War, who then goes to attend a communist youth rally in the Soviet Union and he gets through customs. How does somebody who works for the UK government manage to get through customs? And I might be wrong about this, but I seem to recall that. And this is a fact. This is, you know, I'm not this is not a conspiracy theory. This is not based on little bits of scant information that I've, I've threaded together to try and make a narrative. This is actually true. This is actually what this is actually according to his friends and to John himself. I might be getting this wrong, but apparently one of his friends, he said that when they got to the customs, when they got to customs at the Soviet Union to get into the Soviet Union, apparently he had drugs in his in his bags and the and the 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 customs officials didn't check his bags or didn't even check him at all. They just let him through. And his friend thought this was rather odd. He, he, you know, it was like I'm paraphrasing here. I'm, 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 I'm sort of picking up this from memory. It's, it's been a while since I read this, but he just, he just coasted through. He, he didn't get it checked at all. So here we have this government employee who worked, who's a nuclear physicist, getting into the Soviet Union, virtually scot free, um, attends a communist youth rally, and then he returned to the UK back to his job. And he was briefed by, I think it was MI5 or MI6, as to why why did he go there? What They wanted to know what, what, what was going on. I, I would have um, thought they would be already aware of why he went there. Exactly. <laughs> at his history. See, exactly. That, I, I don't wash with that at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is according to him and his friends what happened. But I don't, yeah, I, I just don't buy that. What they didn't know. What really? Yeah, it, that something doesn't wash. But apparently they offered him a job working as an agent for MI5 or MI6 or whoever it was that debriefed him. And he refused. Or so he says he refused. Um, so he was he I think he was sacked. I think he was fired after this. Or so he says, believe that or not. Apparently he then within a couple of years of leaving this job, he gets a job working for the major newspapers in Britain as a photographer. Now, how he got this job, believe this or not, as I say, this is very Laurel Canyon-esque. Apparently what happened was when he graduated from Cambridge, this elite university, um, his godfather gave him a graduation present, which was a, a camera. And according to Hoppy himself, he had no idea how to use the camera. He was... Uh, what I mean by that is he was proficient enough to use a camera like you or I would use a camera, but he wasn't a professional photographer. He didn't, he wasn't proficient in any other way than 
he could just take snaps, you know, but he, he, but he wasn't up until the point he got this camera. He, it had never been a hobby or anything close to it being a hobby, let alone a, a, a profession. But lo and behold, according to what he's, he says, is he began to take it up as a hobby after being given this camera by his godfather. And um, one day he sent some photographs to a local newspaper. And this was whilst he was working as a nuclear physicist. And the newspaper decided to pay him for them. Um, they actually published these pictures and they paid him. And at this point, a light bulb went off in his head, so he claims. And he thought to himself, oh, I could make a living out of this. So he decides, after leaving this nuclear physicist job, to make his way down to London, having, I think he lived in Oxford, I think, but I might be wrong about that. So he, he made his way down to London, became an apprentice uh, apprentice uh, photographer for a year or two, and then decided to make it on his own. And lo and behold, just like that, he gets a job. He get, He gets work as a photographer on Fleet Street, which at the time was where all the newspapers of Great Britain, all the English newspapers were based. Fleet Street was the street. So basically he was a go-to photographer for for newspapers, by newspapers and magazines on Fleet Street beat a path to his door to, to use his skills. And if you look on his website, he took pictures of some of the biggest movers and shakers of the 1960s, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Martin Luther King, Bertrand Russell, uh, William Burroughs, I think, as well. So and then from that, after about a year or two, he then becomes this de facto leader of the UK counterculture sticking it to the man as it were he really so, got around uh, this guy didn't he he seemed to have quite the <laughs> life like shifting from position to position to position exactly. and always elevating himself to the very top of it yeah so yeah so that's that's what i discovered that's just what i i could go on forever with various other figures within the 60s counterculture who have these kind of connections or these kinds of kinds of backgrounds so yeah so in a nutshell going back to dave mcgowan um, inspired by his work, partly, uh, I began to look into the British scene. And yeah, uh, the, this is what I found. I found parallels that would suggest that, yes, just like in America, where Dave McGowan found these connections with the music stars, I was finding the same thing with regards to the counterculture scene in Britain as well, and predominantly in London, where it was happening. Yeah, and how I got uh, connected to the Bloomsbury group was quite by accident. Um, I went on a short city break to London. We did look at this, didn't we, in the previous episode uh, of the previous time that we we spoke, um, the episode which I've got written down here titled Social Engineering and the Bloomsbury Set. We did actually talk about this at some length. So, yeah, I just I, I went on this city break and I thought to myself, wow, I'm in Bloomsbury. Maybe I should start looking into this Bloomsbury group while I'm here. So I I, I put together some footage on my phone of various locations in Bloomsbury and made a video about it, uh, tying it to the 60s countercultural scene. And I just thought to myself, well, maybe this wasn't accidental. What if this was a dry run, deliberate dry run for what was to happen in the 60s? So within the Bloomsbury group in the early 1900s, it was a microcosm. But maybe this was an experiment to take that microcosm and transfer it to the 60s and make it international. 
Um, so I started to look into the backgrounds of the Bloomsbury group and I began to see connections, as I say, to the Fabian Society, which is this notorious organization, this think tank, this social engineering think tank, notorious social engineering think tank. One of the members of the Bloomsbury group, at least one member, was a founding member of it. And that was Leonard Wolf, Virginia Wolf's husband. So that got me. I mean, we talk about the Fabians today, don't we, as though they're this kind of like out in the open society but they were actually more of a secret society to begin with wasn't wasn't they it was like meeting in secret and they had this plan for this gradual transformation of society so it really does connect to the bloomsbury set because they were the movers and shakers in terms of culture and art and then like you said you brought in the beatles so when you put it all together it's all kind of part of the same thing it's just we see them as separate today because people think oh the fabian society is a political movement no it's a social engineering movement no. No, no, and 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 I, they 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 say it themselves. If you look at their website, I say if you look at their website, maybe they've changed it. It's been a while since I last looked. Um, I last dipped back into it to take a look, but they were formed in eighteen eighty four, and they are described as Britain's oldest political think tank. Okay, and their aim, it said, is to bring about collectivism. Um. And I've got some quotes here from the website. They might have been taken off now. I don't think they have, but it's been a while since I last looked. Um, and they 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 were all they were also found the founders of the Labour Party in 1900. The Labour Party, which is one of the main uh, political parties in in uh, Great Britain, it's the, it's it stands politically speaking um, on the quote unquote so called left um, of party politics. Um, now, this is according to the uh, Fabian Society's website. Its aim, uh, it states that it is, and I quote, an influence on political and public thinking. It has a big impact on political and policy debate, and its staff work with a wide network of leading politicians and policy experts to develop and promote new ideas and to influence the climate of political opinion. Now, the thing is, and I think we mentioned this the last time we spoke, they're not elected. So here we have this organisation who are, as they boast, an influence on political and public public thinking, who have a big impact on political and policy debate, who work with a wide network of leading politicians to develop and promote, to develop and promote, no less, new ideas and to influence the climate of political opinion. But I never voted for them. I live in I live in the UK. I never voted for these people. Who are these people that I have never voted for who have a say in the way that the country is um, is orchestrated and the, the way it has to go? How dare they? Do you know, what I mean? it's like, what, what? Um, so they boast about this. This is no quote unquote conspiracy theory. This this is what they state on their own website. And if you look a little bit deeper and you don't have to look too much deeper, you will actually see, as I have done through doing a little bit of research, that this is actually true, that they do actually have uh, a quote unquote, big impact on political and policy debate. And Matt, it's I've the got way a 2014 they... uh, foreign policy document by the Fabian Society in front of me. It's called One Nation in the World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's just that's just typical them. 
um, and the the methods by which they go about um, well the the method by which they go about doing this uh, is is can be seen in the logo their logo which is that of a wolf in sheep's clothing I mean how much more in your face can you get I mean to me when I see a logo with a wolf in sheep's clothing or I see an illustration or a picture of a wolf in sheep's clothing my first impression is deception there's no other way of looking at it. it to me that's what I instantly think of and another logo that they have um, paraded around but not so much is that of a tortoise with the motto when I strike I strike hard now apparently this really gets to the root of what the the Fabian society how they operate their modus operandi if you like what they do is they this this big influence this big impact that they state they have on political and policy debate is introduced in such a slow steady manner like a tortoise they it, it creeps up on you so if you live in britain and one day you wake up and you open your your if you open the pages of your newspaper one morning you you look at it and you think whoa wait a minute what's this some policy change that's going to affect your life in a major way you think to say, whoa, whoa, what, what's going on here? What, what, what? This, this is awful. This is like catastrophic. What, what's going on here? That's how the Fabian Society works. It's probably been working on that particular policy for decades, for generations, maybe. You don't see it as a, as a, a punter, if you like, as a regular Joe. You're not going to see it come up in front of your face until it actually happens. You're not going to see the process of that going on to to get to that end result you're just going to see the end result and that is fabianism that is part of what their mission and their modus operandi is i mean the average lifespan of a tortoise is about 150 years now if the fabian oh. society began in 1884 and this is their modus operandi it's gradualism it's slow and steady well 150 years is too long for any one person to be alive to see the fruition of their agenda. So if you look at when it was founded, 1884, and you fast forward 150 years, that is almost precisely where we are today, where we're going through this period of almost completion of that agenda. I mean, that is where we are. We're at the very end of this long march to get us to a one world government. So that symbolism is actually quite apt. We are kind of at that tortoise, the end of the tortoise's life where, this one world government is close to actually coming into realization. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I'm glad you said that because um, I might be able to tie this into the World Economic Forum. Um, I've got some statements here in which actual Fabians themselves, like the, the founder members, are actually themselves talking about collectivism. So they're actually stating themselves that the Fabian society is about collectivism. Um, collectivism as a word ain't so bad, you know, let's all pull in together and help each other out. But what do they mean by collectivism? Okay, I've got a speech. This is a speech that Sidney Webb, who was one of the founding uh, fathers of the Fabian Society, if I'm not mistaken, made. He was also a founder of the London School of Economics, a university which is very much um, in operation today. It was founded, I think, in the 1800s, but I'd have to check my notes. But um um, yeah, he was a founder of that as well. And that's an offshoot of the Fabian Society. So this is what Sidney Webb said in a speech 
about 10 or so years after the Fabian Society was formed. So this is in the 1890s. He said, we set to work to discover for ourselves and to teach to others how practically to transform England into a social democratic commonwealth. What we Fabians aim at is not the subdivision of property, whether capital or land, but the control and administration of it by the representatives of the community. It has no desire to see the Duke of Bedford, for example, replaced by 500 little Dukes of Bedford under the guise of enfranchised leaseholders, but prefers to assert the claim of the whole community to the land and especially to that unearned increment of value which the whole community creates. It has no vain dream of converting the agricultural labourer into a freeholder, farming his own land, but looks to the creation of parish councils empowered to acquire land for communal ownership and to build cottages for the labourers to rent. Now, how much more WEF and you alone, nothing and be happy can you get? That's amazing. That is that is a brilliant quote you found there. That really does encapsulate the you will have zero property rights. It will all be on centrally and you will be a permanent renter. Yeah. And you'll be happy. You'll be content. You'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll get a little bit of a scrap of food um, to keep you going and you'll be happy with that because you'll be working outside and beautiful, you know, fresh air. It's, it's good for you. Good bracing fresh air. It's good for the health. Interestingly, he mentions the Duke of Bedford there, which is an interesting, um, interesting family lineage to mention because the Duke of Bedford is actually the bloodline of Bertrand Russell who um, his bloodline, the Russell bloodline, is actually related to the Duke of Bedford. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a high-ranking figure, a head. Um, I can't remember if he was a director or a governor of the London School of Economics. I think he actually um, lectured at the uh, London School of Economics. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's interesting that he should mention the Duke of Bedford. The Duke of Bedford actually owns Bloomsbury as well bertrand russell's family owned the estate that is known as bloomsbury it was actually awarded to them uh, a few hundred years back i can't remember the exact date i've got it here somewhere in my notes in this mountain of notes okay one more quote okay this is from george bernard shaw who was also a founder member of the fabian society a, a playwright a british playwright of course very outspoken um a supporter of eugenics as well uh, and this is another kind of thread that you find that the, the common thread that you find, that I've found having been having looked into the Bloomsbury group and as an offshoot of that the Fabian Society and the London School of Economics that the common thread has two main threads one is world governance the desire for world government and the other one is eugenics anyway this is what um George Bernard Shaw wrote in 1892 about the Fabian Society and its early history. And he really does get down to the nitty gritty. He doesn't beat around the bush. Um, the Fabian Society consists of socialists. It therefore aims at the reorganization of society by the emancipation of land and industrial capital from individual and class ownership and the vesting of them in the community for the general benefit. Uh, in this way, only can the natural and acquired advantages of the country be equitably shared by the whole people. 
the society, that's the Fabian Society, accordingly works for the extinction of private property in land and of the consequent individual appropriation in the form of rent. And rent is in capital with a capital R. So <laughs> the society accordingly works for the extin extinction of private property and land and of the consequent individual appropriation in the form of rent of the price paid for permission to use the earth as well as for the advantages of superior soils and sites. The society further works for the transfer to the community of the administration of such industrial capital as can conveniently be managed socially. Okay, that made me think of, of three things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention them and then hand it to you to tell me, so you can tell me your thoughts. So the first one is I've done two episodes uh, one was on land ownership and the destruction of a lodial title, which is, of course, where we actually have full ownership of our land. It's actually in the UK, all owned by the crown legally. The corporation of the crown owns all the yeah. land and you basically get to be a tenant upon it. But at any point they can take it. So they succeeded there. The second one is that all of our stocks and shares and all of our pensions, which are filled with stocks and bonds, all of those stocks and bonds are legally owned again, by a corporation by the DT, called the DTCC. So they own all of the stocks and shares outright. We only get a beneficial ownership, which is exactly what you just described. And then the third thing is UNESCO. UNESCO is taking control of all <laughs> of the big natural sites or areas of natural beauty. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to get to this, but UNESCO is, is exactly what you're describing. The first head of UNESCO was Julian Huxley, who was one of the Huxley family, infamous Darwinists, Royal Society head, uh, transhumanists. In fact, I think it was Julian Huxley who came up with the term transhumanism. So it's all linked together, isn't it, Matt? And this idea of you will own nothing was actually integrated from the very beginning. But because of that tortoise slowly moving, nobody saw it coming. And a lot of it was done behind closed doors. So people today still think, oh, well, I own the land. I own, I own my stocks and shares, but it's not true. And it feels like at one moment that rug's just going to get pulled out from everyone and they're going to realize that they already own nothing or close to nothing. You might own a few things, <laughs> you know, we might get to keep our headphones and our microphones and our TVs, but all of the real stuff is actually already owned by them. They've already achieved it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, contradict you in any way, shape or form with what you just said, because you know much more about that kind of thing than I do. Um, but I, I, looking at it, because I'm I'm a, a DJ, I'm a club DJ, and I have been since um, I was 16 years old. I'm now in my 50s, so I've, I've made my living out of it. So looking at it from a music, when you were talking about um, ownership, aside from the property angle, which we could really get into, I mean, have you noticed how difficult now it is for a, a, a would-be homeowner to buy a mortgage, to get a mortgage? You have to jump through... I don't know what it's like where you live, but here in the UK, where I'm based, it's really, really difficult. You, it's, you, you know, you're, you're one step away from having to give uh, bro, um, mortgage providers with your blood sample. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's getting that way, really, honestly. It's bad here, um, Matt. It is, is bad it? here. You, you, the standards for getting a mortgage here, you're talking at least a 30 40% deposit. You know what I mean? So credit's really hard to get, and most people here end up with property because their parents give them early inheritance or the parents because i mean the one good thing we've got here is it's an agricultural society so there's still lots of family farms so what you find is parents will separate a piece of their land and give it to their offspring to build a house on or to sell mm -hmm. to get a, a, a you know to get a starter house but 
without that, there'd be no chance. In the UK, I think the UK is far more impoverished in terms of assets than we are here. I mean, people think Poland's like a, a, a poorer country, but not in terms of ownership of things. Yeah. And I, I come from a Greek Cypriot background. Although I was born in the UK, my parents came from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. To I always wondered UK. where that name came from, Matt. That's yeah, Sergio. Ser- yeah, Sergio. Well, it could be uh, South American. It could be Italian. Uh, Sergio Tashini, for example. The you have got brand. a tan to your skin, though, Matt, as well. I know oh, listeners yeah. can't see you, but you've got, you have got a tan, haven't you? Definitely. I, I walk out on the beach. I live by the coast, and it's, there's, it's, it's the middle of January, and the breeze hits me, and I sit down in a cafe, and my wife says, how did you get a tan from walking in the wind? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, are you jealous? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, in, in Greece and Cyprus, this, this what you were saying, that's what happens there. Parents tend to um, live with their with their kids they they build on to the house they add on to the house so that say for example a son or a daughter of a family gets married and they have a family they all live they build on to the house of their parents or their in-laws and live together sorry for interrupting but that's really interesting uh, that you mentioned both in greece and cyprus because where have the two biggest crises financially manifested in europe we had in greece and then we also had Cyprus, which was the first country to ever do bank bail-ins, where they actually took from the accounts of the depositors to bail out the bank. So they just locked you out your account and said, right, we're giving that now to the creditors of the bank to bail out the bank. So do you think that that's yeah. tied into it? Because these countries had a lot of property ownership and young people were having the parents live with them. So it was creating this kind of intergenerational wealth. Is it really a coincidence that those were the two countries that got destroyed financially in the Eurozone crisis? It seems to me too perfect. I don't know. It just seems to me that Greece and Cyprus always get picked on. Um, where, where, If you look in history, um, Cyprus is now, it's it's a north and south, it's become north and south Cyprus. It's been divided. Um, the northern part is now, um, it was invaded by the Turks, Um although the Turks would say they didn't invade, they would argue that it was rightfully theirs in the first place. Um, I'm not going to get into that. But um, yeah, there was there was an invasion, if you like. Uh, there was Basically, there was a military exercise, let's say. There was a military exercise in 1974 that, uh, that resulted in the partition of the island of Cyprus into north and south. And Greek Cypriots, such as my grandparents, for example, on both sides were in northern Cyprus and they were kicked out. Um, they had to just take whatever they could get and move to the southern part and start all over again. Um, this also happened to my aunt, my uncle as well. My on my dad's side, he was he had. I have land. My family has land in Cyprus farmland that they that my father and his brothers um, inherited from their parents, um, which is now in in that northern part, the Turkish part. Um, so. My father's now passed away, so it's kind of come to me as a result. But I can't have it because it's not it's I just can't get to it. It's not it's um, by law, by the UN's accountability or by the UN's um, estimations. It is legally mine, I think, but I can't get to it because you know there's military there and it's just it's just not going to happen. But um, yeah, it just I, I just seem to. It just seems to me that Greece and Cyprus are always the countries that get picked on when anything kicks off. 
Um, and I don't know why that is. Is it because they were one of the cradles of civilization? Is it because Greece has this this um, history that dates back thousands of years, that they were the originators of what we call the modern world? Is that something to do with it? Is this why Iraq keeps getting invaded and Iran? I don't know. I honestly, really honestly don't know. If you're trying to destroy democracy as an even even as a concept, which they are doing, that's what collectivism is all about. It's about, no, we hand off power to a central authority who knows better than we do. Then I think symbolically you want to destroy the homes of democracy. So you're talking Greece, the UK, Canada, America, which are the ones that are getting the roughest end of the stick. You know, those are the ones where we're tearing down statues, flooding with migrants to water down our culture so that we don't have that essence of goodwill and Christian ethics anymore. It's like, no, we've got to adopt all these new beliefs. So yeah, I think symbolically I would do that if I wanted to really cement in the conscious or the subconscious of the collective that democracy is done. It's over with. We're in a new world yeah. and it's a central power, which is like the WEF motto. Yeah. And with regards to music, what I was saying before, in, with regards to ownership when when you were talking about ownership my brain as a dj began to think of mp3s and wave files you know back in the day if you wanted to to listen to music you owned the music you bought records you bought cassettes you bought cds you amassed your own collection you passed it on down to whoever wanted it uh, the next generation or to to uh, friends who might you, you know you swap records you 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 give a friend an album that you've had enough of, you've bored of listening to, and he gives you one, you know, you do a swap, you know, you, you owned the music. Whereas now you don't, you, you're downloading music. Um, and you don't, you're not, you don't see it. Do you, you don't touch it. You don't, you don't look at the cover art. There isn't a cover. There isn't an album cover, you know, a sleeve with art on it that you can touch with your hand and you can just sit down and, inspect it and look at it and that's all gone now it's it's pretty much gone i know there's been a resurgence in the popularity of vinyl again in more recent years but still in the main the majority the vast majority are downloading music so you're downloading music onto your computer or onto whatever piece of media you have your your tablet or your phone but you know, you lose your computer, your computer crashes, it gets a virus or whatever. It's gone. You know, it's it's disappeared, you could say. Um, you don't own it. Don't yeah, know. all of these streaming you services, don't you it. don't own any of yeah. it. And also the artist as well, Matt, it destroyed it destroyed a lot of artists' ability to make a living. Now you've only got this kind of centralized power in music where you've got these top artists, but you can't really earn a living anymore as an artist if you produce CDs and have small gigs because... People can download the music. It's so easy to copyright it, which, you know, okay, growing up, I copyrighted the hell out of music. I was downloading off Napster, but you don't understand when you're a child that that's somebody's property. I mean, look at your your research and your work, right? You, you're you doing all this research. You don't get paid for that research, no. you know, but you're putting in thousands of hours the same as I, and we're all struggling to try and at least get support for our research, but it's nearly impossible in the modern world. Why? Because everything's for free. They're earning money off us through advertising. You know, when you yeah. put your video on YouTube, they get advertising revenue. You don't get nothing from that. You get pennies. Yeah. I mean, my YouTube income is something like, you know, I don't know, 20 cents or something per video. You yeah. know what I mean? There's nothing there. So, yeah. uh, and that's the modern world. Like they have really got this shard up already in terms of owning nothing. And I'm really glad you brought that up in terms of the music industry, because I don't think there's any 
better example than the music industry of property right theft. And it's happening with books as well. It's all Kindle and, you know, you, you don't buy books anymore. You don't own a book as such, like a physical book with pages. You download it. Well, you know, you know. I mean, I've already read about it. It hasn't happened to me, but I've I've heard of people say that they've downloaded books onto some kind of app or whatever and one day they go to take a look at it it's not there anymore or it's been it's been tampered with paragraphs have disappeared or been replaced or been reworded i mean i don't know how true that is but that's what i've heard well they'd love to do it i mean if they can have that power to do it they will absolutely i mean cost are going to do that eventually they're already you know they are they're already editing like my content for example on youtube they cut views off it they uh, sense the videos oh, yeah, they yeah. ask you to take them down so when they've got complete centralization over old books do you really think we're going to be able to get i mean what was the book you mentioned at the start matt about laurel canyon oh yes i've got it here in front of me it's gone um i'll just hold it up this one weird scenes inside the canyon yeah that, that, they'll just delete those books you know or, or they'll just make it unavailable you know for example, yeah. there's a book, there's a really controversial book. Or it's called controversial because it predicted the future. It's called uh, The Camp of the Saints by Jean Rapsale. Very controversial book in that the author in novel form predicted the mass migration of Africans and how Europe would have a crisis of confidence where it would refuse to use force to stop the immigration. Therefore, we'd get this mass flood of immigration and it would start to erode our culture, our institutions. And eventually, it's a very dystopian book. It leads to terror in Europe, which if you look at where we've gone from the 1950s today, you certainly can make a case that the mass immigration has caused untold problems and it's only getting worse. So that book was actually banned in English, but not officially. They just made it unavailable. <laughs> they just made it. And I tried to get a copy because if someone if someone tries to censor it, I want to read it even more. The only copy I could find on Amazon was about five thousand pounds, you know, which you're not going to be able to get. So if yeah. if they've got a literal technological mechanism to stop these books, oh yeah, they're all going. In my opinion, they're yeah. all going. But they don't need to physically burn them anymore. They don't need pyres with flame, you know, a funeral pyre with with books on top of it. Now they can just click a button, press a button and poof, it's gone, you know? Yeah. So that's my thought. When I think of you will own nothing and be happy, my thought is of, of you know, like music and, and, and literature, you know, they, they can make you rent it and you don't, and you don't even, they're not even renting it to you because you don't even own it in any way, shape or form. If it's a stream, if you're streaming music on Spotify, for example, you don't really own that song. You're just paying for the right to be able to play it in your on your computer or on your phone or in your house or wherever you are. But you don't actually own that song in terms of it being in your collection, do you? You're just paying subscription to be on this website and to be able to play it. But it's not yours, is it? So you don't you're not even renting it in a way. You kind have of you know, have you noticed though, Matt, how it feels more and more with each passing year that we don't own anything. Like when I, I was speaking to somebody yesterday about I was trying to make some transactions using my bank account. And every time I use my bank now, there's always a problem. They always need to call me up to verify it's me or they want me to send extra details or when I'm making a purchase with a company even, they're asking me for identification. They want my passport. They want my wife's passport. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, it's our money. It's our stuff. But actually, legally, it's not. And that's why they can do this. Uh, and I had a few transactions recently where they just said, we've got your money, 
and we've got the goods you ordered, but we ain't sending them in until you do this. I'm like, who's got the power here? Like, if you want something from me, you should tell me before I pay you, not take my money and then hold it hostage and ask for some biometric. I mean, ID. one company actually wanted me to upload biometric data to a third party. So they wanted my voice, a photograph, and then a picture of me, a photo of me. And I was like, that, that's actually not even safe. You know, giving my passport, my yeah. voice. Uh, and a photograph like that's not actually even safe to do so i i canceled the order and uh, i got my money back eventually but it took about a week and it was pretty nerve-wracking because i was like i have no power in this so i feel like you know all of this talk of this kind of cbdc dystopia i'm like well we're not actually that far from it now and when you mm -hmm. add on the property right destruction also if people really look at the legality of who owns what you don't own your house you own the bricks but the land underneath it is actually owned by the crown and that can be superseded at any point you know, they can literally move you out of the house. They're not doing it, but they can. Uh, the same with all the stocks and bonds. The same with the bank deposits. You don't own those bank deposits, Matt. They can take them at any point, lock you out of your account and bail bail in the bank. So it's not our deposits either. Yeah. So it's like it gets to the point where it's like they've already got it set up. It just it isn't known. It's not known front and center. But I think we're very close to that. All it would take is one major crisis, like a, I don't know, they talk about a cyber attack all the time. Maybe they do a cyber attack and they say, oh, all of the documents have been destroyed. Now we don't know who owns what. But oh, legally we do. Legally, it's all owned by X, Y, and Z. And now we're all kind of in that servitude place. So I don't know. It just feels to me like if we wanted to stop this, maybe we needed to be aware of these things a lot earlier. But how would you be? You know, it wasn't until the dawn of the internet, as it were, that there was all this, there was more information at hand for people to dig a little bit deeper. What do you think about John Coleman? Because I know his book caused quite... A, I mean, I've got a quote here from the Committee of 300, which is talking about the Fabians. And he said, he's talking about the 1980 election in the US. And he says, the right thought it had won in 1980, but in fact, it had lost. What Butler was referring to was the situation in which the right found itself when it realized that every single position of importance in the Reagan administration was filled by Fabianist appointees recommended by the Heritage Foundation. Butler went on to say that Heritage would use right-wing ideas to impose left-wing radical principles upon the U.S., the same radical ideas that said Peter Vickers Hall, top Fabianist in the U.S., and the number one man at Heritage had been openly discussing during the election year. So, I mean, John, John yeah. Coleman was definitely giving us the heads up, but yeah, I mean, it was a book. It was heavily censored. Today, we, everyone knows the book, but I'm not sure how easily it was to get that how easy it was to get that book in 1990 or whenever it was released yeah yeah exactly not very easy i wouldn't have thought i, I wouldn't have thought it would have been down your local waterstones uh, for example <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um but he's he's not i mean i i don't know about that precise example that you've given there if he's correct or not i haven't really looked into that but it's interesting that he says because yeah he's got a point because if you look at the Fabian Society and its offshoot, the London School of Economics. Um, okay, we're sold. We're sold this this idea that the Fabian Society and, as a result, the London School of Economics are left leaning, that they're perhaps Marxist, socialist, communistic. Certainly, the collectivism is. You know, when, when you look at the collectivist ideas that um, Bernard Shaw and Sidney Webb were were pronouncing all those years back, all those decades back, it certainly does look that way. But when you actually look at the London School of Economics, especially, 
as I have done more so in the last few weeks in preparation for this, what we're doing now, you do kind of see an overlap between left and right. And it does kind of lend itself to this, this um, idea, this conspiracy theory, if you like, that it doesn't matter who you vote for, you're going to get the same thing as um, one researcher whose name now completely escapes me once said, and I'm paraphrasing, um, left wing, right wing, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's the wings of the same bird. It's the same bird that's flying. It's, you know, the wings are attached to the same animal. Um, so looking at the London School of Economics predominantly, now this was formed, I think it was formed in 1897 by the Fabian Society, um, uh, partly from a uh, donation that was left by somebody who died. Uh, I think a former Fabian Society member who died, he left £200,000 or they left two hundred. he or she left £200,000 at a bequest was left to be used according to the society's official website and i quote for propaganda and other purposes and (laughs) according to the official website exactly they're like i said earlier they're both they boast about this stuff so it's not you know in some cases it's not like this stuff is hidden it's right there in front of you if you want to find it um and apparently george bernard shaw is quoted as saying that the, the lse was launched to provide proof positive of the collectivist ideal. Now, the thing is, when you actually look at some of the people who are attached to the London School of Economics, you'd think to yourself, you might think to yourself, whoa, wait a minute. If this is supposed to be this collectivist, um, it's claimed Marxist even um, school, this university based in London, why are all these people these capitalists these so-called capitalists uh connected to it uh i've got a list here um of just some names for example uh, just just to kick this off i mean one of the nicknames that the london school of economics has got attached to it is it's it's been dubbed rockefeller's baby because from about the late 1920s into the 30s and i think even to this day but mo- but uh, not in so much not so much now, but certainly in the 1920s and the early 30s, certainly the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller family was actually uh, funding the London School of Economics. Um, now, the Rockefellers have been involved with banking. Um, so already we've got this weird, almost juxtaposition. Is that the right word? Where we have this so-called collectivist college, this university that's pushing the collectivist ideal which um, has, you might say, right-wing support, um, which lends into what you were saying about Coleman there. Um, And it goes a little bit deeper than just the Rockefellers actually having funded the London School of Economics, because one of the family, David Rockefeller, actually studied in the 1930s at the London School of Economics. He studied economics at the London School of Economics, for a year after having graduated at Harvard. Uh, And then he later went on to become a banker for, uh, he was the president of Chase Manhattan Bank. And he was also a founding member of the notorious Council on Foreign Relations. So here we have somebody who becomes like this president of this huge bank who is studying economics at a collectivist university, a, a university that was set up to, as George Bernard Shaw and others have said, 
to push the collectivist ideal. So, and they're yeah. certainly not looking to uh, share their wealth with the collective masses and create some kind of communist utopia. I don't think that's going to happen. But Matt, listen, I'm going to leave it there for part one because I think we're I think we're um, we're about there for time. But this one's been a fantastic part one, uh, and we'll pick up straight where we left off. So, just before we go, Matt, and um, one last time, where can people find you? Is it conspiro.tv? Yeah, there's my uh, YouTube page, Conspiro TV. There's also my website, Conspiro Media, which is at wordpress.com. Um, I also have a Facebook page, Conspiro Media at Facebook, and also my website, The Occult Beatles at wordpress.com. And if you go to my Facebook page, my Conspiro Media Facebook page, you'll find an amalgamation of all of it. So you'll find bits, ingredients from all those sites, from Conspiro TV, from The Occult Beatles, from Conspiro Media. So yeah, go for it. Go have a look. Yeah, cheers, man. That was an awesome part one, and I look forward to part two. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next one. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Peace in our time. Peace in all time.